through a short series right now called Encountering Jesus, the Women in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I have to admit this is probably my favorite passage in all of the Gospel of Luke, and uh, I'm very excited to share it with you. If you don't have a favorite passage in the Gospel of Luke, I would suggest that you consider uh, the story we're going to look at this morning as potentially your favorite. Uh, so with that in mind, friends, if you would grab your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, there are print Bibles all throughout the room. And uh, I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. Uh, my words will pass away, but the Word of the Lord will never pass away. And it carries all authority. Uh, it's page 1029 in the blue hardback Bibles. That's what I was doing, page 1029. We're looking at Luke chapter 8 this morning. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, friends, with that in mind, let's hear the word of the Lord to us out of Luke chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for your love for uh, men and women, for religious insiders like Jairus and for outsiders like this woman. And Lord, we praise and thank you that you have come to wake the dead and to make those things which are unclean, clean. Lord Jesus, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the gospel of all grace? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, what do you think this is? I'm going to give you a couple of uh, paintings, and I want you to figure out if you can understand what the painter is getting at. It's a series of paintings. There's four of them, of which this is the first painting. So what do you think this is? This is the second painting in the series. This is the third painting in the series. And here's the final one. Uh, these hang in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. They're painted in 1842 by a guy named Thomas Cole. And this painting series is called The Voyage of Life. 
So the four stages of life that Thomas Cole uh, wanted to depict in the voyage of life uh, are clearly seen. So the first one, as you could guess, is birth. And so if you look closely, there is an angel, you know, some uh, angel leading a child into life. If you look closely, there is a little child, an infant, uh, coming out of the cave, coming out of birth, and it's entering into this beautiful new world. So this is birth. Uh, the child is leaving the cave, and it's entering into this beautiful world full of flowers and life. And then, of course, the next stage of life is youth. And so we see here uh, the angel is separated a little bit further away from the child. And who's steering the ship? Of course, the teenager is steering the ship, right? Anyone who has a teenager in the home will know that uh, at birth, if the angel is guiding the child, well, by the time that they're 12 or a little bit older, they want to be directing the ship and then up in the sky, the youthful imaginations, uh, as Thomas uh, said, it, the, the beauty of uh, childhood imaginations. A uh, little uh, Cosette in Les Mis sings, up the castle in the clouds, right? Uh, so there's this uh, beautiful stage of, you know, hope and expectation and joy and excitement. And there's a whole lot of river in front of you when you are a teenager. And then, <laughs> what is this? This is adulthood, <laughs> The tiller that the child had to steer the ship broke a long time ago. And I don't know where I'm going, but I know I'm not in control and I can't stop it. The angel is now even further away, but still looking down. And of course, this man now has learned uh, not just about the excitement up in the sky, uh, you know, as a teenager, but he's actually praying to God for help because life has not turned out the way that he thought it would be. And facing him in adulthood is what? Ultimately, death. Ultimately, death. Now, how fast or slow he's got to go through those rapids and the obstacles in front of you, it's all coming. Every adult knows that. And, of course, the final painting uh, is death, right, where he's brought into the presence of God. Now, I think the really powerful thing about these four paintings, if you were to look back through them, uh, what Thomas Cole was, I think, trying to get us to see is that uh, what really matters the most, and maybe it's because I'm in this stage of life, <laughs> is adulthood. And certainly the second painting of youth. We, you know, at birth, we don't really have much to do. We can't really say anything. We can't make any decisions. And at death, things are too late. What really matters is what happens in the middle, right? Uh, you know, somebody once says, all that you really have is a dash. You know, uh, assuming you have a tombstone one day, on your name, below your name, there'll be what? A year followed by what? A dash followed by another year. And what matters is what you do with your dash. Now, the reason I, I share all this is because, you know, we, you know what's really powerful about these paintings? You know, you know what I love about these paintings? Who's the main character in these paintings? You are. You are. This is your life. Thomas Cole never made it. As an old man, he died when he was 48. The rapids came sooner for him than he knew. But what you do in the middle matters the most. So what I want to suggest to you is you can keep that idea of what's happening in the middle is what matters the most. Then I think you'll be able to understand this passage. Because what Luke is doing in this passage is actually uh, profoundly beautiful. Because if you'll notice in this passage, it starts off about a guy named Jairus. And he has a 12-year-old daughter. 
And he comes up to Jesus and says, will you heal my daughter? And by the end of the story, Jesus heals the daughter. But then something really strange happens right in the middle. And in fact, the whole story hinges on what Jesus does in the middle of this story. And unless you understand that structure of Jairus followed by this beautiful story of a broken woman that ends back with Jairus and his daughter, if you don't get that structure, you don't quite understand what's going on in this passage. And so my hope for you is just as Thomas Cole's uh, you know, paintings evoke reflection on your own life, I pray that you would reflect on your own life as you hear this story of two daughters, of Jairus' daughter and this other woman who Jesus will tell us is a daughter. So let's find out what's going on in this passage and why does what happens in the middle, why does that matter the most? Uh, look at verse 40 with me. This is the beginning, right? So this is the first step. We learn about a man named Jairus. Verse 40, follow along with me. It says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So if you look at verse 40, Jesus has just returned. He was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and now he has returned back uh, to the side where Israel is. And as we see, of course, there is a crowd waiting for him right there in verse 40. Do you see that? It says, the crowd welcomed him. And if you were here last week, you may remember that whenever Luke talks about the crowd, does, does the crowd evoke a good image in your mind or sort of a negative image or a mixed image? It should sort of evoke a mixed image in your mind because a crowd of people is always following Jesus. They're just sort of always around. And they're people who are, some of them are true disciples. They really actually are following Jesus. And then some people are just wanting to be entertained. And as what you're going to see in this story, unfortunately, is the vast majority of this crowd, they're just coming to be entertained by Jesus. And guess what? They are not going to be disappointed. If you want to just be around the group of people who follow Jesus, you will not be disappointed. You will be entertained because some crazy things happen. And notice what happens. Verse 40 says, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. Hey, we get to see some miracles. Jesus is back. And then verse 41, the drama really begins. Because bursting through this crowd, there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. You see, Jairus is a synagogue ruler, which means uh, at a minimum, Jairus would have been an older man who was probably wealthy, and he was a leader of social life, and he was of the highest religious pedigree. Uh, you know, in church parlance, he was sort of a religious insider, Right? He fit in among religious people. Uh, you know, he's a ruler of the synagogue, which meant he got to direct everything that happened on Sabbath in regards to religious life. He was uh, somebody, you know, we would say raised in the church. Right? He was somebody familiar with religion, and he felt very important. And so this is shocking to us, because what does this religious leader do? He falls down, he bursts through the crowd, and is begging Jesus to heal his daughter. Now, that should surprise you, because if you study the Gospels, you'll know that the religious leaders are often Jesus' opponents. <laughs> I mean, Luke 6.11, which happens before this passage, Luke already tells us this, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law 
were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. You see, what Luke has already been letting us know is that these religious leaders, these religious insiders, they can't stand Jesus. And so by Luke 6, Luke is letting us know that they're already plotting his murder. And here's one of those guys breaking rank and falling at Jesus' feet, saying, I've got an only daughter. I mean, this is shocking to us. I mean, these are, you know, Jairus' colleagues were the ones trying to uh, plot for Jesus' murder. And of course, they plot and plot and plot until they succeed in their plot, and they do put him to death. So if you're a part of the crowd, if you could imagine this, uh, you know, if you're wanting to be entertained, this is pretty good, right? We have this very religiously proud person, right, who's very important, and he has been brought low. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're following the news at all, but it struck me on, as I was reflecting on this passage that people really love uh, nothing quite like they love watching important people get brought low, we revel in watching a proud, important person brought low, don't we? Well, the crowd is loving this because Jairus has fallen down, this proud man, this important person, and he is bowing at Jesus' feet, and the crowd, most of all, wants to be entertained. Oh, this is going to be good. I can't wait to see Jesus put this guy in his place, right? Jesus is going to say everything to this guy that I've always wanted to say. His nose was always stuck up so much. Jesus is going to slam him. But what is it actually that Jesus does? Look at verse 42. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went. <laughs> That's it. Jesus went. Jesus doesn't further humiliate this man. He doesn't say, well, you're plotting my murder, you jerk face. He doesn't say, you're a religious hypocrite, you're judgmental. He doesn't say anything like that. In fact, Luke doesn't even record what he says. It just says Jesus went. It's almost like <laughs> it's just automatic for Jesus to be gracious and kind to people. It's just automatic. Compassion is Jesus' default setting. Do you know what a default setting is? Is what you go back to. If you revert to the mean, it's just your default setting. And compassion is Jesus' default setting. So, of course, he goes. I mean, there's not even anything to say. It's so obvious. He doesn't even need to say, yes, of course, Jesus went. You know, when I think about Jairus, though, this religiously proud man, there's a lesson for each one of us to learn, especially for those of us who are raised in the church and that is oftentimes our experience and our knowledge can lead us actually to trust in our own good works rather than to truly know God. This was a religious leader. This was an important person. People listened to him when he talked. And he liked being up front in the synagogue. And yet he didn't know Jesus until he was at his feet. And this reminds me of another religious guy who was super duper religious. And yet he also didn't really know God. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote multiple books in the New Testament telling his own testimony about how he actually came to know the living God, says this. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. Paul writes of his own testimony. He says, we put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anybody could. <laughs> if anybody was a good person, it's me. Listen to what Paul says. 
indeed, if other people have reasons for confidence in their own efforts, I've got more. <laughs> I was circumcised on eight days. When I was eight days old, I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I am a good person. But what happens? I once thought that these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. Brothers and sisters, have you grown up in the church? Oh, come on. I know y'all. I know y'all have. <laughs> A lot of y'all have. But have you come to the point where what Paul is saying even makes sense to you? There was the old way of doing life. I trusted that I was a good person, but there came a moment in my life where I counted that all as garbage because knowing God was more important than any of my good works. I don't trust in my good works anymore. I have fallen at Jesus' feet like Jairus and say, unless you save me, nobody else can do it. Have you come to the point where Jesus really is everything? Now, for some of you, you know, what I'm saying doesn't even make any sense because you weren't raised in the church. You're not a religious insider. You're not an influencer, you know. You don't get on stage at church and people listen to you. Uh, for a lot of us, uh, maybe faith doesn't come easily. You know, um, I'm left-handed. Who's left-handed? Raise your right hand if you're left-handed. I'm just kidding. Raise your left hand if you're left-handed. The elect, the precious few. I love you, All right? Let's do left-handed handshakes after this. Um, you know, every now and then, I will try to, you know, when I'm really bored, I will try to, like, sign my name using my right hand, you know? Have you ever tried to do that? That is so hard. Has anyone ever tried to, like, write with your left hand? It's very difficult, uh, you know, but I think there's something to that. When someone's not raised in the church, like, if, if you're just sort of figuring out a little bit about what you believe or you're investigating Christianity, like, all this religious stuff is like, I'm asking you to sign your name with your wrong hand, like, you may think, well, that's cool for you, but you grew up doing this. And that makes sense for you. You're left-handed. Of course you can sign it with your left hand. But when I try to sign something with my left hand, it looks really bad. Well, maybe that's you. But if that is you, uh, friends, I have great news for you. And that is you need to understand the core of this passage. Not just the beginning and the end about Jairus, but really the important, beautiful part about this woman that's healed. Because she is not an insider. I have great news for you. Look at verse 43. Luke goes on, he says, And as Jesus went, uh, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, that is Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment. 
And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. Don't you love Peter? (laughs) There's people everywhere. Remember, because Jesus hangs out in the city center, right? He's at Costco because there's people everywhere. (laughs) But Jesus said in verse 46, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Uh, Friends, here we have the core of our story. Jairus's daughter and Jairus, it begins our story and it ends it, but the real heart is in the middle. This is the dash. This is the two paintings in the middle. And if you miss this, you miss the whole story. You see, what happens in this story is there's a little girl who is 12 years old who's about to die. And we're introduced to a woman who has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And as Jesus is going to save this girl from death, a speed bump happens. And this woman works her way through the crowd and touches the corner of Jesus' garment. And then Jesus stops everything. And Peter is thinking like, stop stopping, Jesus. Keep going. Why are you stopping? There's a little girl. You need to go save her. And Jesus says, wait, someone from the crowd touched me. I mean, could you imagine being Peter in this moment, it's like there's literally people everywhere. Peter's like, uh, everyone's touching you, Jesus. Let's get going. There's a little girl that's going to die. Like, how powerful will this be, you know, to, to win Jairus over to the kingdom of God? Stop stopping. <laughs> Keep going. Don't worry about who touched you. A lot of people are touching you, Jesus. Keep going. And yet this woman reaches Jesus, and he stops everything. So we have to ask, what's going on? Why does she do this? Why does Jesus stop? And why does Jesus say the things that he says? What's going on? Uh, You know, when I think about this story, I'm often reminded of uh, probably my favorite theologian of all time, Calvin. And uh, he gave me a lot of profound insight uh, over my life. I actually started reading Calvin when I was probably six years old. And he shaped so much of my my thought life. I just love Calvin so much. And uh, he really, really helped me to understand a lot of things. And, uh, you know, this is one of the, when I hear this story, I'm reminded of this teaching from Calvin. Uh, It says, uh, I'm talking about Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. Who did you think I was talking about? I really did start reading him when I was six years old. Uh, You know, when I hear this story, I'm reminded of Mo. Uh, If you can't read this, Mo, it comes up to a, a little cartoon character named Calvin. And he says, I don't like your face. Which Calvin responds with, then don't look at it. And Mo says, I'd rather change it. Ha! And he clobbers poor Calvin. And uh, I love this quote from Calvin. He says, I don't care about being accepted. I'd settle for being ignored. You know, if you're trying to understand this woman, this is definitely her perspective. She doesn't want to be accepted, per se, by the crowd. She just wants to be ignored. And yet Jesus says, stop everything. Who touched me? And then he waits so long that just finally the woman comes forward. And then he proceeds to have a conversation with her. What's going on? You've got to understand this. You see, this woman who has had this discharge of blood, in the ancient world, she would have been unclean. 
which means that she wouldn't be able to touch other people without making them unclean. Uh, this woman has uh, become devoid of friendship. You know, in the ancient world, they would have thought, just like many people think today, that if something bad happens to you physically, then what? Well, then you must be a bad person. And so this is a woman who is deeply afraid, who only knows rejection. And who do you think she's afraid of? Why doesn't she come forward immediately? Friends, I would suggest to you that she's afraid of the crowd. Because if she worked her way through the crowd to Jesus, that means she just did what? Made a bunch of people unclean. And there's a little girl that's dying. Who is she to stop everything? You see, the crowd, including the apostles and Peter, they may see this woman as just an annoyance, a speed bump, right? Somebody who just sort of inconveniences everybody else. I mean, have you ever had someone like that in your life that's just kind of a speed bump that you wish would just go away? They just get in your way? They inconvenience you. Now, do you think you're seeing that person through Jesus' eyes? Or do you think you're looking at that speed bump like the crowd sees a speed bump? Friends, how did you learn Christ? Did he treat you as a speed bump? Jesus sees her. Power has gone out of him to heal her. But why does he stop? Huh. Why? I mean, we would maybe think that the most compassionate thing Jesus could do, right? Compassion is Jesus' default setting. We would think that the most compassionate thing is to do what? Let her go, right? I healed you. You keep going. I won't, I won't embarrass you in front of everybody. You know, but in fact, what I want to suggest to you, friends, is that this is the most compassionate thing that Jesus does. You see, what, she, what he is doing is when he calls her forward, he is resetting her identity. Everybody knows who she is. She's the reject. She's this bad person that's had 12 years of a physical problem. She's unclean. And when Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well, he's not just speaking to her. He's declaring her clean in front of the whole crowd. He's re-identifying her in relation to him. She's afraid of this crowd, but Jesus wants the crowd to know who she truly is. She is a daughter. Now, why does she reach out and touch the corner of his garment? I mean, what's going on here? I mean, um, you know, you may think that maybe she's just like superstitious and Jesus is just working, you know, graciously in response to her superstition. You know, she's reaching this corner of his garment, right? And maybe she thinks he's got magic powers or something. Is that really what's going on? Uh, well, friends, I would suggest to you to think more deeply about this for a second. And I'm going to show you something in another language which you won't understand, but I think you'll get the point in just a second. Uh, this may seem odd. I'm going to show you some Hebrew, if that's okay. And I think it'll actually help you understand what's going on in this story. So if you read the Old Testament, which was written in an ancient language called Hebrew, which some people still speak today around the world, if you were to look at the book of Numbers, you know, the book that we rarely ever go to for our devotional life, you may know that in the book of Numbers, we get this rule. It says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners 
of their garments throughout their generations. So uh, who's been to Israel or, or seen a Jewish person wearing the prayer tassels on the ends of their garments? You know, they wear a shawl and they've got little white and blue cords. Well, where are they supposed to attach those tassels to? Uh, to the corners of their garments. And if you were to look in at the Hebrew, I, put, I made it red uh, so you could kind of see it a little bit more clearly. But that says, it's going, remember, Hebrew goes right to left. So it says C-N-F, kanaf. So if you were listening to it, it could say, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the kanaf of their garments. Now, the reason I, I show you that word is because elsewhere in the Old Testament, there's a prophecy in fact, it's the last words of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament ends with a book called Malachi. And the prophet Malachi says the day is coming when the Lord will be here. And the prophet of Elijah will come and he will prepare the way for the Messiah. And Malachi tells us that the Messiah will come. And this is one of the prophecies about the Messiah, that when he comes, we'll know him by this. He says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, right, that's the Messiah, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. But what the really beautiful thing about Hebrew is, is that word wings is actually kanaf. It says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his kanaf. Another way you could hear this is, but for you who fear my name, the Messiah shall come with healing in his corners. So when a woman with a discharge of blood, whom no one could help for 12 years, hears that the Messiah has come, and she works her way through the crowd, she knows that the Son of Righteousness, the Messiah, will come with healing in his kanaf. And what does she reach out and grab? His kanaf. And like that, she's healed immediately. You see, friends, she may not have understood everything about Jesus. I mean, the disciples didn't understand everything about Jesus. But she had faith that he was the promised one who maybe really did come on behalf of God. And she reaches out to the one thing that she thinks can heal her. And I, friends, I think this is why Jesus looks at her and says, your faith has made you well. It's not generic faith that everything's going to work out or, you know, the big grandfather up in the sky. It is faith in the Messiah. And in front of this crowd of whom she is terrified, he says, you are no longer unclean. You are no longer rejected. You are what? You are daughter. See, we get this beautiful comparison between Jairus, this religious insider, this important man, and this outsider who has her entire identity reset. I mean, this is really the question of our day, isn't it? I mean, who am I? What is my identity? What gives us ourselves? Who are we? You know, when we think about the four paintings of our life, right? What am I? Who am I? What am I going to be? I mean, people are desperate to give that answer, right? Our culture is desperate to find out who they are. Identity is the question of our age. And so we looked at things like, is it my career? Is it my successes? Well, one of the worst things that could happen to you, friend, if you haven't heard this, I'm sorry, but the one of the worst things you can have is success. It can make you unbearable. You can end up like Jairus. Is it in our family? Is it in how healthy we are? Is our identity in our brokenness? I'm just 
I've got 12 years of this discharge, and I'm just a reject, and that's all I'll ever be. My tiller broke off a long time ago in the river. You know, the actor Jim Carrey has said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that that's not the answer. Friends, if you haven't met Jesus <laughs> so much that he has completely reset your identity, you are missing what life actually truly is. You are missing a relationship with God. Friends, you cannot call yourself daughter. You cannot just call yourself son. You need someone else to call you that. You need to know your creator. And he is the God of all grace. He's willing to stop. You are not a speed bump. And even if you are raised in the church, Jesus' default to you, friend, is compassion. It's compassion. I mean, do you know God like that? Do you know the compassion of God for you? You see, Jesus doesn't just come to heal physical things. Yes, he healed this woman, but she wasn't really healed until she knew who she was. Friends, you are not healed until you know who God says you are. See, the final section of this story ends back with Jairus' daughter. Look at verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead, don't trouble the teacher anymore. <laughs> Talk about someone lacking compassion, right? Verse 50, but Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what happened. See, this is a shocking way to end this story. Because what happens is Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. But what's interesting is... If the crowd is outside wanting to be what? Entertained. They want to be entertained. Jesus didn't slam Jairus. That's not all that exciting. Uh, Jesus did this weird thing with this woman. What's going on there? That's annoying. We want to see a miracle. We want to see this little girl back from the dead. But what does Jesus do? What does he do? He shuts the door. And only Peter and James and John and the mom and dad are there. He doesn't give the crowd what it's looking for. Instead, he gives them a visual, a shut door. And even when he raises a little girl from the dead, he tells them, don't give the crowd what they're looking for. Don't even tell them what I did. Just enjoy dinner as a family. Don't give them the satisfaction. I mean, could you imagine being in the room when Jesus says, little girl, wake up, child, arise. I mean, imagine the, the joy in Jairus' face when his 12-year-old daughter is alive. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine the amount of chocolate that little girl probably got just then? Probably equal to her weight. But there is this sobering image that is irreducible to this story. That there's a whole crowd of people outside the door, now angry and frustrated at Jesus. Because they didn't get what they wanted from him. 
They wanted to see entertainment. And Jesus says, don't even give them the satisfaction. I mean, what are we to make of this closed door? Joy inside, frustration outside. You know, in a couple of chapters in Luke 13, a couple chapters after this story, someone comes up to Jesus and they say, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? You know, what the person is saying, who, who leaves the crowd and ultimately gets reborn? Who leaves the crowd and is actually one of your disciples? Is it only a few? And it's so interesting how Jesus responds. You know what he says? He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive to enter the narrow gate. And then Jesus says that one day God will hold a great feast, a huge banquet, with people from every nation, language, and tribe. But when Jesus calls this feast together, you know what's going to happen? There will be people for whom it is too late. And he says, but those who are outside the door will knock and say, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers. Friends, what matters is the dash. There's a way of living your life such that if you put off following Jesus long enough, your heart may be so hard that you may not make it to the feast. Friends, how can Jesus talk like this? How can Jesus talk like this? How can he make an unclean woman clean? How can he raise a little girl from the dead? How can he so profoundly challenge each one of us to leave the crowd and enter the joy of the feast of the Father? Who has teaching like this? How can Jesus talk like this? Well, friends, you know, because at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will be ultimately rejected by this crowd. The scribes and the Pharisees and the religious rulers, you know, Jairus' colleagues, the insiders, their plot will come to fruition and he will be cast out. And Jesus will be made unclean for people like you and me and for this woman. And his blood will pour out for her and all of our sins. And he will be led to his death. And he will die on a cross for our sins. But friends, on the third day, the Holy Spirit of God will raise him from the dead and he will arise and conquer death itself, proving that he has the power to raise the dead. And that he is in fact not just a human teacher, but the author of life itself. Now, friends, this story is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And if you let it, which some of you will not, if you let it, it will re-change your life. You will have a new identity that's not based on your successes like Jairus or based on your wounds and your hurts like this woman. Your identity will be daughter son. And those are things you cannot call yourself. You need somebody else to say, you belong in my family. Now, friends, that's an invitation. Let's pray.